0: Welcome everybody, this is a special episode of the Venezuela Analysis Podcast, where we'll be answering questions submitted by you, our loyal readers and listeners. And we have the entire Venezuela Analysis team with us here today, myself, José Luis Granado Ceja, Ricardo Vaz, Andreina Chávez, and Cira Pascual Marquina. Thank you so much for joining us. It's so good to be here with everybody and to be able to share our understanding of the situation in Venezuela. We have a lot of questions. We're really excited to hear from so many people. And we really have some quite good questions that I think hopefully cover all of the issues that people are wondering about. And I think we'll get started right away. So our first one is about the situation in Latin America in general. You know, what are relations with neighbors going to look like? We have two really important elections this year in South America. Obviously, we have the first round of elections in Colombia. We have the second round coming up, which is pitting a leftist candidate, Petro against this populist right-wing candidate Rodolfo and so obviously the Venezuela-Colombia relationship is really important. So let's start there. Who would like to talk to us about the potential impact of these elections? What will it mean for Venezuela depending on who wins in the second round in Colombia and then we'll move on to our other neighbors?
1: So, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, these elections are really important. I mean, we we are thinking about Colombia, Rodolfo Fernández versus Gustavo Petro. Gustavo Petro is uh, a progressive, perhaps a leftist. Uh, There's been a little bit of debate because Gustavo Petro has made some not so kind remarks in relation to Venezuela. But I think that we have to have... Uh, We have to understand the whole context. Basically uh, the situation up to now with uh, Ivan Duque in the presidency of Venezuela and in general Uribismo uh, at the helm in Colombia. Uh, The relations between Venezuela and Colombia have been really terrible. Colombia has been tremendously hostile, well more than hostile, aggressive with Venezuela. So um, Gustavo Petro and Francia Márquez really represent an alternative, uh, a more progressive alternative. And actually, uh, I think that as Latin Americanists and internationalists, we should highlight that it's important for Venezuela that Petro wins. Uh, It's important because it would make for better relations. We cannot idealize the the future if Petro wins, but uh, the relations will for sure be better. But the most important thing as latin american is that uh, it would represent a very important change for uh, for colombia and therefore it would be very beneficial for the for the whole of the continent for the colombian people especially and then for the whole of the continent
2: yeah i think you know i was i always say that gustavo petro he has always made it clear that he he does not align himself with the bolivarian process or with the nicolas maduro government so he's not exactly um, le- uh, a strong left political ally for Venezuela, but he does represent the best, the only progressive option that, and in, that's in something that Colombia needs. In a country like Colombia, Petro's progressive agenda for peace and social change it, it is almost a revolution. So Petro winning will be the best option for Venezuela, for all of Latin America. And especially now that we're seeing this second wave of progressive government taking power and we're seeing these new efforts to unite the region. So, and so far, Petro has actually said that he plans to restore diplomatic relations with Venezuela, which have been broken since since 2019. And even before that, there was always this constant diplomatic conflict. So hopefully, if he does restore diplomatic ties, we might actually see for the first time more normal and healthy communication between Venezuela and Colombia and and I think this is going to be so critical for Colombia's and Venezuela's economy because we we do share a a long border and we have we are very dependent from each other and there's a migrant community from both countries that represents an important economic sector and This community needs support, and you can offer that. You can you can give them that support if you don't have diplomatic relations.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think that the very least restoring diplomatic relations could mean uh, a lot of things could improve. Um, But you know, as as others mentioned, there is this strained relationship between the different progressive leftist forces in Colombia and in Venezuela. But that's not the case with Brazil. In Brazil, we know that the PT and the United Socialist Party of Venezuela are very much united in the sense that they, they have a long history of cooperation. And I think the words of encouragement that we've heard from the forces surrounding the PT in Brazil have been certainly better, right? We had Gustavo Petro comparing the Bolivarian revolution and, and President Maduro to Uribismo, which is a bit of a strained metaphor, I think. Um, that's not the case in Brazil. So what about Brazil? What would it mean for the giant of South America if they were able to secure a victory of Lula?
3: Yeah so Brazil is of course the you know the biggest economy in in South America and yes you were saying it has been I mean, the left in Brazil has been much more vocal in opposing US intervention in in Venezuela perhaps that has to do with their their strength and perhaps they feel they they have a strong enough position that they can afford to take these these stances that perhaps go a bit more Against the mainstream, which is not the case in, in in Colombia, and we saw that Petro was absolutely unwilling to lose any any kind of political credibility by going against the grain when it comes to Venezuela. Uh, I also I don't want to be over optimistic about Petro because he had like forty percent in the first round. So I mean, if if the second round was today and and the right wing joined it joined its votes, he would actually lose. So he still has some some ground to make up, and of course, we're all, regardless of what he said about Venezuela, we're all rooting for him. In Brazil, it's, it's kind of the opposite, at, at least right now. It's Lula's election to lose. And one thing that perhaps I would highlight beyond you know all the things that Lula can do in Brazil, which, which is a country that is suffering a lot, it suffered a lot with the pandemic, it's also going through very tough economic times, is perhaps a new boost to regional integration initiatives. So if you go back some 20 years or 15 years, there were a lot of initiatives. And and Chávez, of course, was kind of the beating heart behind them. And then in the last five years, six years, as the right wing gradually took power, these initiatives were either frozen or, or dismantled. And Lula has mentioned things like creating a South American currency, which Uh, is an idea that was floated in the past. So it would be very interesting if he does get elected, which again is something we're all hoping for, to see if there can be kind of a second wind for these regional integration initiatives, which are kind of a a way to secure uh, an autonomous development uh, path, which is independent of the United States.
0: And speaking of regional integration, I'd like to turn to the topic of Cuba. So as we know, the Cuba-Venezuela relationship has historically been very, very important for the Bolivarian Revolution, the Bolivarian process. Uh, It was, you know, Chavez's first visit was to Cuba, and obviously, Fidel played a huge role in, in terms of the political orientation of Hugo Chavez. But we also have seen that because of the multifactorial crisis, because of the economic situation that Venezuela's in, the relationship isn't the same, at least in economic terms, as it used to be, you know, it's Venezuela still in a difficult position and can't play that supportive role that it once did. That doesn't mean that the cooperation doesn't exist. And recently, we saw that there was a uh, a meeting between the heads of state to talk about strengthening that cooperation. So where are things at? We had a reader ask us about the situation in Cuban-Venezuela cooperation when it comes to healthcare, energy, military, education, etc. Where do things stand when it comes to Cuba and Venezuela?
1: Basically, I mean, around two thousand between two thousand and six and two thousand and twelve, the cooperation was very intense. Very between two thousand really, and four, really two thousand and three, two thousand and four, and two thousand and twelve, the cooperation was very intense. That was the the period of, you know, there was a relative stability, uh, and basically, in the last few years, we have seen indeed. Reduction of the kind of cooperation, that wonderful cooperation that brought us doctors to the Venezuelan barrios, and that meant also that Cuban people who had, you know, who were very prepared, came here and advised and education, etc., etc. That period indeed is not. Uh, it, it's for now. It's over. Now, uh, as you were pointing out, José Luis, uh, the internationalism of the Cuban. Government and especially of the Cuban people, is alive and well. So we still have doctors here. Like, for instance, a very good friend, she's studying medicine and all her teachers, all her professors are Cuban doctors. Uh, There are still, in the Ministry of Education, there are still some Cuban uh, people who are actually helping with uh, organizing the processes, the educational processes. So, um, I mean, I think that... It, it is what it is. The reality is that Venezuela does not have the, the muscle that it had at that time. But also, perhaps uh, it's true that perhaps there's less interest in, from the Venezuelan people in terms of establishing those channels of cooperation. While the relationship between the two countries is very, very good, but there's actually less interest in establishing those sorts of relationships with Cuba right now. So it's multifactorial.
2: The period that sira was talking about was, of course, when Venezuela was, uh, they developed Venezuela and Cuba, many energy cooperation agreements, uh, many economic agreements and social development projects, especially in healthcare and education. And, you know, Venezuela, when, with Hugo Chavez, Venezuela began providing Cuba with oil in exchange for doctors, teachers, and other professionals. Who became part of Venezuela's social missions, the Bolivarian missions. And we can forget that these missions really were the reason why Venezuela uh, improved so much in the years when, when Chavez was when Chavez began. And one amazing example of cooperation and solidarity between Cuba and Venezuela is uh, which I always like to mention is Mission Milagro, because This was truly uh, an international solidarity program that was launched by Chavez and Fidel Castro, I think it was 2004. And it provides free medical treatment for people with, uh, with eye problems, with visually impaired people. And this program until today, you can still see the effects because this program created medical centers across Latin America. Millions of people in the region regained their eyesight with free surgery and many others have got access to eyeglasses. So even though the cooperation that we had back then, we don't have it now because of the the economic crisis, the sanctions and all of that, you can still feel the effects of of everything the, that those missions and that cooperation, that solidarity uh, did for our people. And yeah, I think right now, Cuba and Venezuela are more on the, uh, reinforcing their political alliance, you know, more than these old economic agreements that they had. So, yeah, I think some of the the lessons that both nations have learned is that they have to maintain their alliance, they have to strengthen their political power, and they con- continue to build this alliance to counter the US aggression, especially the sanctions program.
0: Yeah. and speaking of sanctions we're going to move on to our next block of questions we saw that the alba had a summit and it's reinforced this relationship between the countries that are member states of alba we've also seen mexico playing a leading role in trying to stand up to us imperialism in the region and trying to force biden's hand by making sure that all the countries of the americas are being invited to the summit of the americas this episode's being recorded on friday june 3rd and as as of today yeah, Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua are not expected to be invited, which means that some countries will be boycotting the events. But obviously, we've seen Venezuela's in the news. The conflict in Ukraine led to this somewhat surprising scenario that we saw a high-level delegation visit Venezuela. Although, ultimately, it looks like not a lot came of it. You know, there, it seems like the expectations were raised, but ultimately, there wasn't a lot of follow-through. Now, that can be due to a lot of considerations. I think it's important to, to note that there was a very strong backlash inside of the United States as a result of this high-level delegation. You know, the the Miami political community, the reactionaries there really leapt on it to try to really limit Biden's options in this. And now we see that he's going to be traveling to Saudi Arabia. So oil is still important. But You know, we're not seeing too much change in terms of U.S. foreign policy towards Venezuela. So where does the status of the Venezuela-U.S. relationship stand? And I I think importantly, what does this mean for the negotiations with the opposition? Every time this issue comes up, the U.S. says we support a negotiated settlement, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, the two issues are related. So where are things at, U.S.-Venezuela and the opposition negotiations?
3: Yeah, as you were saying, this this Biden delegation visit to Caracas in early March turned out to be much ado about nothing. I think at, at the heart of it is kind of a lack of direction uh, in, in terms of what the Biden administration wants to do, right? Because on one hand, we've seen both clear signs and also these uh, ubiquitous anonymous officials who leak stuff to the press that they are not. Content with just moving on with whatever Trump laid out before before them, and in this case, this uh, very farcical "quote-unquote" interim government led by Juan Guaido. Yet, even though they realize that this policy is going to fail, and, and we assume, of course, that the ultimate goal remains re- regime change. It's not. It's not going to change, regardless of whether it's a Democrat or Republican administration. But the Biden administration has not been willing. Has not been willing to bear the political cost of changing course. And perhaps this has to do with the very short sighted nature of US politics, where uh, there's always a, an election or a midterm election coming up. And so it, it's never the time to make any significant changes. So Biden, in the end, took the took the hit of, from, from this visit to Venezuela and didn't get anything in return. So the, the thing that was in question, was Chevron and Chevron's license to operate in Venezuela. I think we might get to it in a bit more detail later on, but in the end, for all the, for all the talk and all the, the reports in the media, nothing has changed and nothing seems like it's going to change until November. So again, it, it's really up to, to, to the Biden administration to decide whether he really wants to do anything or just remain in this constant damage control mode.
0: And what about the issue with the opposition? Is there a likelihood that there's going to be return to talks? Is there expectation? Does it depend on the U.S.'s role in this? What do people think about that?
1: Well, I mean, of course, um, apparently the, there were there was some movement in some thrust towards um, towards a dialogue when this whole thing about lifting or rather than lifting. Um, lightning some of the sanctions uh, was happening and the two things were happening ha- hand on hand but in fact uh, that didn't turn out I mean the sanctions basically have stayed at the same level of brutal intensity on Venezuela so um, it is less clear if there is uh if if things are getting closer to a negotiation. I mean one thing that I think is important to understand is that uh, generating the conditions for f- beyond the obvious things like obviously uh Guaitos self proclamation and and, and um, the parallel government and all these issues, there's there's another thing which is that the opposition is highly fractured. Guaidó, actually, in political terms, is a dead dog in Venezuela, and he has been for a long time, but he is still considered a factor internationally. So um, with the sanctions, with, this, with the maintenance of the sanctions intensity and the fractures within the, the Venezuelan opposition, which is, we could say, divided between these more, let's say, uh, cool, willing uh, sector, the Guaido sector, and another sector that is willing to negotiate with the government but has never had any social base in Venezuela, that situation means that right now uh, the government perhaps is not in such a need of having negotiations. And um, obviously, the main thing for negotiations would be Uh, relaxing the sanctions and there seems to be no interest to do this from the United States. So I think we are going to see, I mean, we probably will see some low-level negotiations in the near future, but I do not expect like high-level negotiations reactivating in the near future.
3: Yeah, it's very clear that the government is not not in a rush. So we saw once the, the Biden administration announced that uh, it was not going to relax sanctions right now and it was going—it kind of kicking the can down the road until the November midterms, we saw something leak to the press, which might be a coincidence or maybe not, uh, which was the Venezuelan government saying that it no longer wanted Norway mediating the talks with the opposition. So maybe there's something behind it, maybe it's just a way of the Venezuelan government saying that it's not just going to roll over and go back to the negotiating table with the opposition if there's nothing significant in return. So as Cyril was saying, I think right now time is on the side of the Venezuelan government because the opposition is fractured. It basically loses credibility by the day because it it can't really do anything. And there's the, the presidential elections in 2024 are still quite far away. So it might change after the midterms. Maybe the political cost equation changes for Biden. And also, I mean, the government does need sanctions relief to get a boost to the to, to the economy, which will in turn improve its conditions for the 2024 election, but right now it seems like Maduro is happy enough to to continue to continue down this path.
0: Well, you mentioned uh, the situation of no longer wanting Norway to mediate, but there's another big factor here that I think we haven't talked about, which is what about Alex Saab? You know, the government has insisted that he's a member of the delegation, and therefore needs to be at the table, but obviously he is presently detained inside of the U.S. after being essentially kidnapped by the United States. So where does that fit in? Do you think that we'll see any movement when it comes to the issue of freedom for Alex Saab vis-a-vis these negotiations with the opposition?
2: Last year in October, the Nicolas Maduro government left the dialogue table with the opposition in Mexico because Alex Saab was arrested, was extradicted to the United States in you know, the government said that they would not return to the talks unless that was released. And you know, now very recently, when they announced they were holding meetings with the opposition to maybe resume talks in Mexico, uh, the government did say that they were going to continue to fight for that uh, release. But it seems like it no longer—it is no longer going to condition the the resumption of the talks um i think we have to consider that uh, the venezuela government is uh, trying to pave the way for the removal or lifting of some sanctions against venezuela and against the oil industry and that inevitably becomes a priority so i think i think alexa is going to continue to be part of the discussions and the negotiations with the united states but right now in a, it is not going to condition the entire dialogue process. It's not going to condition the talks anymore. And and that makes sense at the moment, you know, because we're talking about some sanctions potentially being lifted, which will benefit the entire Venezuelan population. So the struggle for SAC liberation will continue, but under different circumstances.
1: Yes, I totally agree with, with Andreina. Basically, sanctions relief. If there is a real possibility of sanctions relief, there will be a dialogue. If there isn't a real possibility of sanctions relief, there won't be a dialogue. So SAB is not the key issue uh, when we come to these uh, two negotiations.
0: So you're mentioning that this isn't the key issue. The key issue is sanctions relief. And one of the things that we've seen mentioned in the media has been the possibility of a change in the license with Chevron. And a lot of people are actually surprised to learn that Chevron is still in Venezuela, albeit in a very limited, reduced capacity. So what's the current government's current view with working with private oil companies? You know, why is there this, this push to have this license changed so that Chevron can resume its activities in the country? And what does this mean for the economic crisis? How does this all factor in? To the situation for Venezuelans in their day-to-day lives.
3: One well, one thing that we need to to mention is that it's not just the present government. This actually goes back to Chavez. So when there were significant reforms and really revolutionary changes to the, the oil industry with the hydrocarbon law in two thousand and one, and there was there were later some important decrease in two thousand and six and two thousand and seven, which raised the Venezuelan state's participation in the oil industry. So it's no longer the the paradise it used to be for multinational corporations. Uh, a number of them left, and there are also some very unpleasant litigation going on, which uh, would be a subject for a whole other discussion. But some of them stayed, and they stayed in these joint projects where typically the Venezuelan state oil company, PDVSA, will own 60% of the shares, and the other 40 will be owned by a private corporation and when the sanctions ramped up in 2019 and 2020 essentially the, the united states began the united states treasury department began to target these corporations one by one so for example spain's repsol or italia I- italian any to uh, make them wind down their operations in venezuela and the only one that stayed was chevron because it constantly lobbied that it needed to be in a prime position to take advantage, quote unquote, once the situation changed. I think it, it, it also goes to, to show the, the short-sightedness of, of the, the Trump administration at the time that they expected, the, once Guaido proclaimed himself, they expected the situation to change quickly. And so there wouldn't be this kind of strange situation where sanctions are actually hurting the economic interests of US corporations. So Chevron, having stayed in the country with this very limited license, which essentially only allows them to, to do maintenance work, they would be, I mean, the, the U.S. government would make sure that if there was any sanctions relief, they would be in the, in the best position to take advantage of it. And going back to the other point that you were mentioning, how it affects the Venezuelan crisis, uh, I mean, for all the talk about moving past, the rentier economy and, and so on, which, of course, we shouldn't, shouldn't downplay this, this discussion. It's clear that the fastest way to, to bring the economy back to life and in, in turn, again, raise people's living standards is through an increase in, in, in oil production. And in that sense, the country is going to need a lot of investment, a lot of know-how and for better or worse, it's oil corporations, which are in, in the best position to, to make that happen. So the fastest way to increase oil output would be to for for uh, corporations to come back and, and restart their activities in Venezuela. So that, that's why, I mean, on one hand, you have Chevron's interests, which are lobby to the administration. But also, I mean, if, we, if we're talking about the Venezuelan oil industry's interest, it's also to raise output very quickly, and, and that happens. And the fastest way for, for that to happen is with the investment from foreign corporations.
0: And despite the U.S.'s intransigence on this issue, not really wanting to make any movement when it comes to the relief of sanctions, even minimally, there's still been talk throughout Venezuela and a lot of messaging coming from the government about an economic recovery. And I think we have seen some efforts to attend to the quality of life issues that plague Venezuelans as a result of the crisis right now. So what are the things that the government is doing to spur this economic recovery that, that is being talked about? And what does it mean for Venezuelans? Is there actually an improvement in terms of quality of life? Is is that modest economic recovery translating into something material for the Venezuelan people?
1: Well, Jose Luis, as you say, there is an economic, a small economic recovery, uh, in in Venezuela, it's been happening for approximately one year now. I guess one question is where is the origin? Why is there an economic recovery in in Venezuela right now? Because the sanctions—I mean, there hasn't been any sanctions relief. So I guess there's probably multiple factors, including the growth in exploitation of in gold exploitation. But also, we should factor in a liberalization of the economy, which, in you know, like, in macroeconomic terms, generates an improvement of the economy. But it doesn't generate an improvement of the life of the working people in Venezuela. In other words, there's been basically a drastic liberalization of the economy. Uh, we could say that there's been some a, a sort of an adjustment package. Uh, that has happened here in Venezuela. And with that has come, you know, like if you go to the center of Caracas or if to the center of any city or to the middle class areas, you see a lot, many more restaurants. You see, actually, if you go to the wealthier areas of Caracas, you actually see many luxury cars, very new cars, which until, you know, like even a year ago, you went around Caracas and it was empty there were almost no cars and there was very little activity in the street right now you there's actually a lot of cars in this in the street um but what is particularly surprising is that you know like there's like a lot of luxury cars but there's a lot of people who are really really hurting there's a lot of people who are living on 30 dollars a month wages and i should I should make something clear here. Sometimes, you know, from the Global North, people think, well, maybe with $30, uh, you are kind of hurting in Venezuela, but, uh, but maybe you can actually make it with $30. No, you can absolutely not live on $30 in Venezuela, actually. Uh, I mean, it's really far from what's needed. So um, what we see is, uh, in microeconomic terms, a recovery of the economy. But we also see a tremendous growth in inequality. So, uh, yeah, that's not so good news. But of course, um, this, there is, uh, there's a kind of like a sense that we are getting out of the hole because of some uh, numbers changing and some surface elements uh, changing as well.
3: Yeah, so just, just to add something not, and not to sound like a broken record, a key factor is the the oil industry. So in, in the second half of, of 2020, production reached some historic lows, and then it basically doubled in the subsequent 12 months. So you couple that with the very high market prices and it really gave the government more room to maneuver. So, yeah, I think S- Sira says it perfectly when she says that there is an economic recovery, it's clearly visible, but it's very unequally distributed. So even even the worst the uh, the worst affected sectors of the population will say that the situation has improved, but it has not improved to a point where it is in any way, shape or form manageable. And it certainly hasn't improved like it has for the for the upper the upper echelons, which are now even going back to some of the some some of their past luxuries like this uh, Concerts, these high-profile concerts with international superstars, and so on. And in fact, it's, this is not just reading the tea leaves. The, the government has been quite clear in saying that the living standards and wages will have to wait for the situation to to improve. So, it it's not uh, it's not exactly trickle-down economics, but it is in a way uh, a recovery where much more is being left or a lot is being left to to the market and then perhaps now the government that it now now that it feels in a safer macroeconomic position is looking to again address some of the some of the most pressing issues uh, wages were raised uh, a couple of months ago for the first time in many months and now there's talk about improving public services so so we'll have to see Uh, how the the macroeconomic situation continues to improve and where the government's priorities continue to be.
0: Andrea, what do you think? What are are things like for Venezuelans on the ground as someone who was actually abroad and has returned? So you have that perspective.
2: Yeah, so that's an interesting question because uh, I left uh, Venezuela in 2020 and we weren't seeing any signs of economic recovery back then. So when I left, everything was still the same, the same as always, the same economic crisis that we had been going through for years and I came back maybe two months ago and I've been asking that question to some friends and ex-coworkers and yeah all of them agree that we are much better now compared to previous years and you have to take into consideration that we are comparing to times of astronomic inflation, zero purchasing power, like Severe food and fuel shortages and uh, blackouts. I mean, so in comparison, anything seems better now. (laughs) That's what everyone can say. And, you know, these friends, these people I've been talking to, they also say that this economic recovery only benefits a minority of the population. So they feel it is very fragile, it is very unequal, it is not sustainable yet. So, and yeah, like Ricardo was saying, um, it is true that Venezuela has achieved a modest increase in oil production and exports, uh, and this has helped, of course. And then the Venezuelan government, like Sira was explaining, has also applied some liberal measures that have allowed to uh, a partial dollarization of the economy. So, these measures have given access to dollars to a minority of the population, making their lives a little easier. And, you know, I'm talking about workers in the private sector that earn a portion of their salaries in dollars. And there's also the population that receives money from family members that live abroad. And, but the majority of the population doesn't have access to U.S. dollars in any significant amount. You know, workers from public institutions, teachers, pensioners, for example, they don't have access to U.S. dollars. So that's why we, we say that the, this is a very unequal recovery, because, because it's only benefit. It is only being only a, a really small portion of the population is uh, is having an improvement in their lives. So, yes, it is very unequal. And I think Syria is like that. We are probably seeing an increase in social inequality.
0: It sounds a bit like what the government is trying to do is rebuilding the productive forces in the country, given the years of crisis that's preceded this moment. And in some ways, that does remind me of the Chinese method or the Chinese version of socialism. We actually had someone ask us about that. You know, we know that the relationship with Russia and Venezuela is very important, but obviously given the geopolitical situation right now with the conflict in Ukraine, that the relationship cannot be as helpful as maybe it once was. But there's also China. Where does that leave? Is Venezuela, is the Bolivarian process inspired in a sense by China? And where does China fit into the situation in Venezuela right now?
3: I don't want to sound too grumpy, but I often feel that this comparison to China is a bit of a way to cheat in in debates. and And let me explain because I mean it's clear that the Venezuelan government is, uh, you know, to use the same expression we've been using, is in introducing liberal measures, and it's kind of not not kind of really uh, improving the the role played by the private sector, uh, not just the, the domestic private sector, but also the foreign one, in the hopes of attracting foreign investment. And what has happened is that because of sanctions, uh, investment has not exactly arrived. And so what the government does is that it liberalizes a bit more, but then the U.S. will just clamp down on sanctions again. So we can talk about China being a model in the sense that you can kind of calibrate the weight of, of the private sector and, and so on. But at the same time, the, the conditions are are very different, right? I mean, you, uh, there there is talk about... Uh, boosting production and, you know, bringing the, the basic industries back to life and continuing to recover the oil industry, that all remains very complicated under sanction. And since we are on the subject of China, you know, for all the talk of China standing up to the United States, once the, the Treasury Department introduced secondary sanctions, China stopped uh, operating in Venezuela and it stopped buying oil cargos directly because it didn't want its uh, state oil company to to come under sanctions. So, uh, for all the, I mean, Venezuelan oil is still ending up in China, but it has to do these complicated triangulations and C2C transfer, which means that uh, Venezuela in the end gets less bang for, for its buck. So China is not willing to, to, bear, to bear all these costs. But in the end, I think what, what people here on the left and inside Chavismo want to debate is, I mean, we mostly agree that the, the crisis and the sanctions force the government's hand to make some concessions. But then, of course, the debate is which concessions are necessary and which ones are really going beyond what's necessary, because there's a sector, there's a new emerging bourgeoisie, which uh, is clearly taking advantage of the difficult situation to improve its its standing and and to take over uh, several productive assets on the cheap.
1: I'll say something very brief. I mean, uh, there is no doubt that within the government there are sectors that do talk about the Chinese model. Actually, those sectors are the sectors that are more pro-liberalization or pro-more for, for liberal policies. I would just personally make an observation and that's that the Chinese model is a, is a model where the state has a great deal of control over the society and the economy. And the Venezuelan state like most of the states in the periphery, in the global south, is actually a very weak state. So I would say to those of us in the left who think about how to come out of the current situation, I mean, one one thing maybe what you think about the Chinese model um, You may have a more sympathetic or less sympathetic reading of it. And another thing is if it can actually be applied here. And to the first one, I won't answer, but to the second one, I will say these are not the same conditions. You cannot apply the Chinese model here because the state is a weak state.
0: So one of the advantages that we have as Venezuela analysis is that much of our team is on the ground. And I'm really happy to see that we got a lot of questions about those kind of on-the-ground issues. So we're going to do a little bit of a lightning round here just to wrap up this episode of the podcast. And anybody who wants to jump in and answer these questions, feel free to go ahead and do that. And I'm going to start with this one. Uh, we had someone ask about our publishing, or, or the content that we've published on popular movements and the Communard Union in particular. I know I'm personally very excited to see that. And they ask, how do these organizations see their role currently amidst the government's liberal turn, the issue that we were just talking about, as well as under tough U.S. sanctions? So just one more time. The popular movements, the communist Union, what's their response considering the economic situation we just described and the situation of U.S. sanctions, which don't look like they will be relenting anytime soon?
1: Well, I will say very quickly that the popular movement may have, some of sectors of the popular movement do have a critical reading of the liberal policies, but the popular movement is very aware of the impact of the sanctions. Um, So what is the relationship between the government and the popular movement, cooperation and tension? I mean, that could be the description of the relationship between the government and the popular movement historically, I would say that there's been times with more tension, times with more cooperation. We are kind of like in between, in a period where there perhaps the intensity of the tensions is not the highest, but there are tensions. But at the same time, the popular movement... Uh, does uh, build with the government and when the government stretches a hand or, or is willing to help and support, the popular movement is always uh, happy to cooperate and to work together.
3: Yeah, one thing just, just to compliment is I would recommend uh, readers go on our website and check out the series of interviews that we've done with several popul- popular movements throughout the country and that will really allow people to understand the, the struggle from below. How they analyze the internal and external contradictions. And at the same time, they will realize how the the grassroots, the Bolivarian movements remain very inspirational and and they remain a key component, as they've always been, of the Bolivarian process.
0: Speaking of popular movements, we've also seen the mobilization by teachers and other professions. We talked about the challenging situation that many in the public sector face. What's been the response of the government to these demands? And similarly, what's the government's response to? the fight against the mafias, the gold mafias in Bolívar State, as we know there's a lot of interest in exploiting natural resources aside from oil in Venezuela.
3: I mean, uh, quickly, the the response to to these kind of trade unions demands has been to tell them to just wait and see because there was a recent wage increase and the government doesn't feel it's in an economic position to really improve the public sector wages that much right now, or maybe its priorities are are elsewhere. So it doesn't look like that's going to, to change anytime soon. But these sectors are also permanently mobilized. As for the, the gold mafias, I think, uh, I mean, quote, unquote, gold mafias. I think the government's response has been to try to regulate as much as possible, not necessarily fight against it. And there are, of course, uh, significant environmental concerns to add as well. But try to regulate because, as Sira was saying, the, the government is desperate for income and gold has been kind of a, an, emergency, an emergency source of funds in these in very difficult times.
0: I think this is best for Sira. Can you say something about the auto-centric economic development, you know, the work that you've been able to witness and, and see in the communes? What about this about imperial value flows? Is this dollarization that's been happening, this clandestine dollarization, one of these imperial value flows?
1: well first i would like to say that uh, with with our experience uh, with uh, communes especially which are the uh, grassroots spaces for a construction of a new economy and a new democratic society uh, their economic impact at the national scale it is small uh, it should not be we should not be thinking that most of the venezuelan uh, people live in a communalized society. Absolutely not. Maybe one percent of the Venezuelan society lives in a communalized context. But I think it's important to say that in those spaces where there's communes and in those spaces where there's popular grassroots organization and democracy, direct participative democracy, life is much better, both in material and in spiritual or you know like social terms. So uh, that's one thing. So about uh, The imperial value value flow and things like dollarization, etc., etc. Those uh, when the when the economic opening or when the economic restructuring began to happen, approximately two or three years ago, when the Venezuelan government uh, started to shift its economic policy, um, that was a very hard time for for the communal organization. Because, uh, of course, it's not on the side of capital. <laughs> and if it, since it's not on the side of capital, it was very, very painful to adjust to the new realities. Now, uh, more recently, I would say that uh, the communal movement is a little bit stronger, but it has nothing to do uh, with external uh, events. It has all to do with actually more organization, further links between the between the communal organizations through the common art union, which we were mentioning earlier. So, um, I don't know. I mean, like, first, let's put it in context. In the, in the broad context, the communes are small. The communes have been hurt, of course, first of all, by the sanctions and the economic crisis, but also the uh, liberalization process was painful. Right now, if there are uh, solutions that are being uh, found by the common Arts, it's because of the common art's own making.
0: So we've also seen recently a lot of concern at a global level about food sovereignty, about access to food. We have, you know, inflationary pressures, but obviously also what looks to be a food crisis on the horizon. And we know one of the important states in Venezuela that produces food is the state of Barinas. So what is the situation there, considering the recent election results, with tensions that have existed between grassroots forces inside of? this area of the country and their tensions with the landowners in the area. Has this had an impact on agricultural production? What's the situation right now for small producers, for campesinos?
1: I'll say generally that the situation for small producers, for campesinos, is not very good at all in Venezuela. But there is, uh, with this whole reorganization of the economy, there uh, there is a growth in the agribusiness sector. Um, Barinas is um, Barinas is one of the places, not maybe the most important, but one of the states where there's a lot of agribusiness. In fact, the fact that there was a lot of agribusiness with the prior uh, Chavista governor is uh, was a factor that actually made us, possibly made us lose ground in Barinas. So, um What is the situation with all this? It's complex, but it's a complex context. But uh, in terms of food sovereignty, uh, if we are looking for food sovereignty in terms of uh, campesino production, which is actually actually a very efficient way of responding to people's needs, as we know, uh, things are not so good. Now, if we are looking at at the growth of agribusiness, uh, things look good for agribusiness.
3: Yeah, I would just add that the, these issues are not really dependent on the local government or the state government. And in fact, the, the, the opposition governor in Barinas has kept a very low profile ever since being elected, perhaps because he knows that this is a very important place for Chavismo. So if he is going to uh, move against campesinos, uh, he he's either biding his time or, or, or thinking about it. But uh, uh, until right now, there hasn't been any significant change. I mean, there were struggles before the election and there
0: have been struggles since. And it's interesting when we're talking about Barinas, who was the candidate there, Jorge Ariaza, you know, who's previously foreign minister, previous industry minister. And it is kind of curious. We had someone ask us about this. What's going on with all the cabinet changes in Venezuela? It's a bit of a curious situation. Anyone want to share their thoughts on why there are so many regular changes in the cabinet?
2: I mean, I imagine that the person asking that uh, maybe things that that could be a sign of internal conflict. And I don't think that's the case. I mean, this was a usual practice, even in the Chavez government. And it is still done frequently uh, for different reasons. Sometimes the country needed a sort of like a political shakeup to obtain results. Other times, ministers were required to run in elections. so. And, and lately, I think uh, it it has more to do with adapting to the political and economic needs the country has. So, so we recently saw the new that Maduro appointed a new foreign affairs minister, who used to be Venezuelan, the Venezuelan ambassador to Russia. So, and I think this responds probably to the need that we have right now to strengthen Venezuela's relation with Russia because the government has made it clear that Russia will continue to be a, a key political ally. So, yeah, I mean, if if the question was because maybe they think this, this means some kind of internal conflict, no, I think in Venezuela, this has more to do with constantly shaking the political scene and making sure that we have the right people where they need to be at the moment, even if it's for short periods of time.
3: Yeah, one thing I would add is that there was a time uh, in the early years of after Maduro was elected where there was a lot of turnover, but also in, in key ministries like the oil ministry or the finance ministry. And that kind of changed. And w- we now have some people like Tarek al who took over the oil, the oil ministry and he's also finance vice minister. We have, uh, sorry, he's economy vice minister. We have Delcy Rodriguez who has the finance ministry. So some of, some of the key ministries, uh, if we're talking about what they mean to the Venezuelan economy, have been stable for a long time. But of course, there are always these uh, musical chairs with the others, and even more so when you know, ministers go run for office or, or lose office and then are reappointed.
0: And one final question here in our little lightning round. What's the situation with the Petro? There was a lot of in- international attention. There's a lot of people who are interested in cryptocurrencies, but then we haven't really heard much about it. Where are the things at there?
3: Yeah, I'll, I'll take this one. This is a bit of a flashback because the Petro generated a lot of enthusiasm in back when it was launched in 2017, 2018. I think that the main thing to understand is that the Venezuelan government didn't exactly want the Petro to be something, to be another currency in circulation domestically. It was seen as a way to bypass the looming blockade that was arriving when it, comes, when it came to the international financial system. So the Venezuelan government saw this as a mechanism to deal internationally with other countries. So, for example, India would buy a bunch of petros and then it would exchange exchange these petros for oil shipments. Or then Venezuela could use petros to buy medicines or to buy fuel. Basically, create an alternative ecosystem that would allow international trade to continue despite U.S. sanctions. And, of course, the U.S. Treasury Department was not fooled. And it levied sanctions against the petrol almost almost immediately. So then it kind of became something floating because a currency needs to fulfill certain roles, right? It needs to 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 be a, a savings mechanism. It needs to be a means of exchange, and it needs to be an accounting unit. And the petrol doesn't doesn't feel doesn't tick all the boxes. It doesn't really work as a means of exchange. So really, there's no incentive, and there are no Uh, easy channels for people to to access and to use it.
0: Well, we've reached the end of our program. I want to thank everybody for joining us today. I want to remind our listeners that Venezuela's work is 100% reader supported. Your contributions help keep this uh, website and this program out and informing the population. But while we're on the topic, we did have one last question, which was, where does our funding come from? you know do can we clear that up some people think that maybe the venezuelan state is supporting venezuela analysis anybody want to take that one
1: well the funding comes from people like our listeners 100% uh, we are fully funded by by people who are solidarious and who are interested to hear what's really going on here here in venezuela from a from a perspective from an underground perspective and people who are interested in knowing what is happening with the government, what the government is doing, how the sanctions are affecting us, but also how the popular movement is building an alternative. So yeah, people like you fund Venezuela analysis, people like all our listeners and readers uh, are the ones who fund us.
3: This question might have been motivated by some stuff that's on our, our Wikipedia page. So there was a period, perhaps a couple of years, where Venezuela did get funding from? Venezuela Analysis got funding from the Ministry of Culture, but that never had any influence on our editorial line. And actually, people can go back to reporting and see for themselves. But since 2008, we have been 100% funded by readers. There's, I believe, on our Wikipedia page also something about mutual agreements with the likes of Telesur. That was never; it never involved any financial compensation. It was just those were just agreements to share content, and uh, I mean, every now and then we still share content with TELASUR, but we have no no editorial coordination with them. In the end, I think this accusation that we're funded by the government says more about the people who levy with the accusation than it does about us. I mean, it's usually from, from these liberal people who can't really fathom anything worth fighting for, and so they only the only explanation they have for someone disagreeing with us exceptionalism is that they are funded by an evil government so i mean for them there's nothing we can do
0: yeah in fact i think there's a meme that all of my all everybody who disagrees with me is automatically a, a russian bot so that's definitely not our case and i think that's the best pitch we can make you know uh, our independent coverage and you can see for yourself right like you know there isn't necessarily a situation where we're just towing the government line no we, we want to amplify the voices of the bolivarian we're its roots that's one of the the firm commitments of our work at Venezuela Analysis and it's only made possible through the support of readers and listeners like yourself. So if you're able to, we'd love to uh, count on your support to in order to continue doing the work. I want to give everybody just one last opportunity, anything they want to say, share or or just send a, a message to our listeners.
3: I can go first. I just want to thank everyone for sending their questions and we hope to do this again. Sometime, of course, you know, people can always ask questions. They don't have to wait for a special podcast episode. They can follow us on, on social media. And we always try to be as responsive as possible.
1: So uh, to all of us, all of you who are listening, I think that the most important uh, thing to to get out of these kind of conversations is to understand that, of course, Venezuela uh, and everybody who's listening knows already the sanctions are really criminal and and mobilize wherever you are to to bring them down. They have to be brought down. Also, it's very important for us from Venezuela Analysis to highlight that um, of course this is a democratically elected government. The Venezuelan government is a democratically elected government. And as such, um, we hope that it will stay here. But who are making the people who are making an alternative the people who are building an alternative are the people in the grassroots the people in the popular organizations so as you are since you are solidarity people internationalism is important for all of us and i think that the internationalism that i would call for would be an internationalism that also commits to the grassroots that also commits to the people who are make, building an alternative
2: Okay, finally, I, I also would like to say that, you know, given how the media is always manipulating information about Venezuela and everything that has to do with the economic crisis and the sanctions, I truly encourage people to visit our website, venezuelanalysis.com, because I truly believe that uh, this is the one of the safest ways to understand what's happening in Venezuela. Um, and yeah, and please support our our efforts because uh, like Sira and Ricardo were saying, we are 100% supported by readers and listeners and support alternative media everywhere. You know, this is the only way to truly defy these uh, corporate media and and the lies.
0: Excellent. Well, it's been, as always, a pleasure to speak with you. Honestly, it's a privilege to be able to work with all of you and and your wealth of knowledge and experience. I'm Jose Luis Granados, host of the show, and we've been speaking with Ricardo, Andreina, and Sierra from the team here at Venezuela Analysis. Thank you so much for joining us.